If I was the man I was five years ago, I'd take a flamethrower to this place. Cinnabon Woman Mac and Cheese, next. When your weekend's all spin up and you got Monday coming down the pike, sometimes all you need is a little comfort to get you through to Monday. Mac and Cheese Movies, where we believe in comfort food and comfort movies. I promise you an easy 300 bucks. I don't get an easy feeling. I was just scared, son. I like my aides to be presentable. Well, I, I've had a few since. Um, but my roommate, he got me his clinic because he, well, he's from Chestnut Hill and he's Catholic. The History of My Skin by Charles Sims. Get out my dress blues. They're in a garment bag in the closet. Are, are we going someplace, Kurt? What business is that of yours? Don't shrug you, but so I'm blind. Our destination, New York City. I'm just going to have to turn right around and come back. <laughs> Charlie's having a difficult weekend. How does he look like he's holding up? Oh, he looks fine to me. Don't think I can't see women. Because I can't see women. Boy, you have a one-track line. Women are the essence of life. She's wearing florists. Flattered okay. Ogovistas do so. That's amazing. Well, I'm in the amazing business. I should be getting back to school. Ooh. I don't think you're going to make it. You said that the last shuttle leaves at 10 o'clock. I lied. All I want is one last tour of the battlefield. You're just in a slump right now. How would you know? Watching MTV on your life. Director of Midnight Run and Beverly Hills Cop. The young rules. The young board of governors. Pay your dues. I don't know whether to shoot you or adopt you. It's not much of a choice, is it, sir? Al Pacino. Chris O'Donnell. Scent of a woman. What a marvelous place. Trailers are pretty long in general. I think they just release more of them now. They have different cuts of trailers that come out. But like a lot of the trailers are super long. And I'd cut out a minute of that trailer. Um, because a lot of it was just music and stuff. Yeah. That's um, – I I don't know. I don't recall that trailer. And hearing the kind of funky music playing. Yeah. It really – I don't know. Did the filmmakers – did they have a say in the trailer back then? Or the studio cut it? Because that doesn't sound like it fits with this movie at all. It doesn't. And I also do like that it's a head fake for like what the movie's going to be like. Because there's nothing in there about the prep school stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It makes it out like it's really just about this guy who's into women. Yeah. And and all that. So it may have been like a marketing ploy or whatever. But yeah. Um, Hoo-ah. Welcome to Mac and Cheese Movies. I'm Scotty Coppedge. And he's Skyping in from the Sugar Bush Lodge, Chad Newman. <laughs> oh, you got to come here next next Thanksgiving, <laughs> Scott. You got to come up. Uh, welcome to the show, Chad. Last time we did this was on the Darjeeling Limited. Uh, it's good to have you back. Today, our movie is, is A Sin of a Woman, and in honor of it, Jack Daniels on the rocks for me, and Chad is having a diet slice. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I wanted to do some rolls from the Oak Room. The Oak Room's a real restaurant. I couldn't find any copycat recipes or anything about the rolls. Um, and I had some Jack Daniels for when we were scheduled this earlier a few days ago, but it's 10, 20 in the morning right now. So I'm just going to – I think what I'll have to do is maybe do some reshoots on this when this comes out and then like splice them in. Um, and if I try to make the rolls 
right now, I'm sure they taste like Albany. So the th- the thought is that like Albany, <laughs> the thought is that we're going. This is going to air around Thanksgiving, right? Yeah, because this is like the quintessential Thanksgiving movie. So maybe if we do, if we come back and do some reshoots, maybe the Oak Room can mail rolls out. Maybe we can mail order Oak Room rolls online. That would be great. I'll look to it. According to the legends of IMDb, Colonel Frank Slade has a very special plan for the weekend. It involves travel, women, good food, fine wine, the tango, chauffeured limousines, and a loaded forty-five. And he's bringing Charlie along for the ride. Chad, give me your hand on the screen. This is just the start of your education. First taste. When did you first see the movie? What is your relationship to it? Why is it a mac and cheese movie? So, I, this movie came out in 93. Is that right? Around there? Yeah, yeah it was like, I think it came out in 92. He won the Oscar in 93. So, um, 92, I would have been 14 years old. 13, 14 years old. I don't think this was a movie. I, I did not see this movie in the movie theater because... It didn't. I don't even know that I was aware of it, honestly, at that time. Um, it would have been when it came out on video, maybe even, maybe even a year or two afterwards on video. You know, when we're renting things all the time, and I think I became interested in who was winning Academy Awards, and probably watched it then. Excellent. What My- about you? When did, did you see it at the theater? I did. My parents saw it first, um, Uh and they said, you have to see this movie. And they wouldn't tell me what it was about. I was like, what's it about? What's it about? They're like, we're just going to go in cold with it. You don't need to know anything. We'll we'll just go. And there was not – You're like, is this a perfume movie? (laughs) It's a perfume movie. Um, You know, I didn't know who Al Pacino was. I didn't know any of these people were. And it was the first kind of movie that, like, I was like, the, this plot is really unlike anything I've ever seen. Um, and you're just kind of blown away by it. Um, so it was, like, a fast favorite when I saw it. I saw it, like, in 93. And, like, I'm trying uh, – then I'm 12 years old. I'm trying to, like, tell – I'm telling all my 12-year-old friends, oh, Sin of a Woman, you got to see this movie. And a friend of mine, I was, like, trying to – convince him to convince his parents to let him watch it with us like on video and his parents wouldn't let him watch like r-rated movies and i was like it's r for mature themes it has it's like a like a plot that like kids aren't gonna be interested in that's why it's rated r uh, that's a good <laughs> so the the, Im- the implication being that you thought their son could handle mature themes he was a mature 12 year old yes yes <laughs> Thoughts of depression and suicide and integrity. No, he can, this will resonate with him. He can do this. He can lift that. Yeah, and like we've said before, my parents were kind of like anything goes unless it's got a bunch of sex in it, you know? Or the yeah. horror movies. I really couldn't do a lot of horror movies either, but yeah. So I love that your parents told you there's this movie you've got to see. I don't recall my parents ever saying something like that to me. You've got to see this. <laughs> I don't, that's probably why I didn't hear this movie because my parents weren't going to the movies. Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, that's, 
that was something foreign. I think I do that with my kids. I'm like, oh, you've got to see this. This is great. Uh, I'm only playing second fiddle to Walter and Mary Helen, though. Yeah, yeah. They also got the movie on VHS, like when it came out, because it was like $30 or something, like as opposed to like, it was like 90 VHS was like not as easily able to like buy. That was not really the industry back then. But like we got it like in Dallas, like it, like a Suncoast or something for 30 bucks. So I was like watching it like constantly. That's good. So a 12-year-old Scotty probably quoting this movie borderline obnoxiously a lot. <laughs> Yeah, right. yeah, that's that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. You're saying hua in class? Uh, I think I was probably doing this more at home um, than like just in school and giving Ranger chokeholds to kids and stuff. <laughs> you know, I will. We'll, we'll jump to that. I think I one of the things that I loved about The West Wing is that it totally changed my perception of Bradley Whitford because in this, this movie really said it like, Oh, he's just a total jerk always. And so the West wing was the first thing that came along that made me think, Oh, maybe there's more to Bradley Whitford because as Randy, he's awful. I was thinking about that this morning because he had that 15 year run where he's playing dicks. Um, and even, even in these like shots that are not like close-ups of Bradley Whitford, where he's just in the background, he still looks so pissed and miserable. Um, he's just yes. really dedicated yes. to his craft, and like, God bless the West Wing casting or whoever it was who was like, you know what? Let's take this guy and like, I I see something else that this guy can do. Right, right. I'm trying to see what what was what was he doing in that run? Who Bradley Whitford? Revenge of the yeah. Nerds 2, Nerds in Paradise. Oh, he was in the Alpha Betas, wasn't he? He was, in, he was the Alpha Beta leader, and he's in Billy Madison. Right, yep. Okay, yeah, I mean, he was just, he was in jerk mode. Yeah. So let's talk about the ingredients. Al Pacino, he gets the Oscar for this. Is this his best performance, or is this maybe a makeup for a film that he should have gotten it for? So I think that's a question. Um, I think he deserved an Oscar for the first two Godfather movies. He could have won and gotten an Oscar for Dog Day Afternoon. Um, he had some, you know, when he burst onto the scene, I mean, he was he was doing some really great stuff. Um, so there's probably some element of how have we not given Al Pacino an Oscar already? That maybe that was at play, but. As, as good as you know, all the other components of the movie are, and not all of them are great, but a lot of them are great, this is really his movie. I mean, he, he has a ton of dialogue, and he really carries everything with the movie. So I think he probably deserves the Oscar for this as well. Who, who else was nominated that year? Okay, this, this, is, this is the lineup here. Robert Downey Jr. for Chaplin. Which I love. You and I both yeah. love that one. Clint Eastwood. I think I'm pretty sure I saw that in the theater. I, I think I saw it on VHS, but yeah, it, I mean that is an incredible performance. I think I went for Chaplin as Halloween that, that year because of that movie. Nice. Clint Eastwood for Unforgiven. Unforgiven is also terrific. Okay. Denzel for Malcolm X, and then Stephen Ray, oh, The Crying Game. 
and so I think Ace Ventura kept me away from the crying game. <laughs> I didn't need to watch it. I didn't need to watch it. So, yeah, so I haven't seen it. Um, I haven't seen it either. That is a stacked year, though. I mean, those are all solid years. <clears throat> I mean, it feels like a lot of years now, like there's like kind of the the front runner favorite and then like some other performances. This is like, it could go any way, you know? But I think, um, you know, probably in that field. So, you know, Robert Downey Jr. is probably not going to win that year. And the crying game, if the crying game was something more like today, maybe it would have been more of a contender uh, at the time. All, the only thing I ever heard about the crying game back in the early to mid nineties was that it had this shocking twist. Yeah. And, uh, and by the, and by the time I learned about that, I think I was more interested in like Tarantino movies. So I, I never revisited it. Um, Clint Eastwood, you know, back then didn't a lot, the, the Academy liked to give Oscars to actors turned filmmakers. Yeah. And I think Unforgiven won best picture that year. It, I think it won a ton of awards that year. So Gene Hackman won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor from it. It won Best Picture. I think Clint Eastwood, he probably won Best Director or something. Probably. I think so, yeah. Kevin Costner had won an Oscar for Best Director. Mm -hmm. uh, Mel Gibson would win an Oscar maybe the next year or the year after for Braveheart. So so I guess it really comes down to Denzel or Al Pacino. Yeah. Um, it's probably just... Yeah, there probably was some makeup factor. Yeah. We have, to, we have to correct a past mistake and give Al Pacino. That probably would maybe gave him the edge over Denzel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, Malcolm X is really long. <clears throat> it's real long. Is, is it over three hours? It's over three hours, yeah. There was... Two VHS tapes. <laughs> remember that. Big, big box. <laughs> Sin of a Woman is not in a short movie either. Yeah, it's over two hours. So here's a side note on Malcolm X. My brother Brett was assigned to do some in a history class, like some report in the mid-90s. Maybe he was in the seventh or eighth grade on a, a famous African-American in history. And so he chose Malcolm X, and he was supposed to read a book or you know go to the library or something. And instead, I remember this distinctly, he comes to me and he had handwritten this report on notebook paper and I read it and I'm, as I'm reading, I go, wait a minute, this is just the synopsis of the movie Malcolm X. <laughs> All Brett did was watch Malcolm X on cable and then take notes. And that was his report for history class on Malcolm X. That's still, that's still at least three hours of working on the report. That is true. That is true. He probably would not have spent as much time in a library. <laughs> I think so. Al Pacino. Um, I think this was a movie that kind of signaled a new phase of his career. So um, he got the the loud voice. I think that became like a prominent tool in his arsenal. Yeah. For the next maybe ten or fifteen years, because every a lot of stuff is like more subtle, like in the Godfather movies, right? Right. He's. he's I mean, he's quiet. You know, there's. You know, he yells that. In Godfather Two, he has like one outburst. Uh, in Godfather One, he has he raises his voice maybe once with one word. So yeah, there's a lot of restraints, sub subtleties to it. 
This one is not a very subtle performance, though there are some subtleties to it. But otherwise, for the, for the most part, no. This is this is a very. Yeah. So, uh, would they say scenery chewing? Yeah, is that's the right phrase. Yeah. And I don't want to say showboaty, but it's kind of, I mean, it, he definitely, like, takes center stage on this. Right, right. Well, and, I mean, even in that final scene, that great scene that, you know, we love and have quoted portions of at various points over the years, uh, he's, you know, he's the guest. He's an uninvited guest at that, and he takes center stage. And I think that's probably... Um, a good summation of how he is in the whole movie. I mean, this is, you're not going to be in a scene with him in this movie where you're going to like be the center of attention. In fact, if you notice like some of those scenes where, uh, the scene where he and Chris O'Donnell are wrestling with the gun, it doesn't really show the two of them in the same shot ever. It does. You'll have close up shots of Chris O'Donnell and then you'll have close up shots of Al Pacino. And I figure part of that is, we gotta, we gotta be able to bring something out of Charlie here. If he's in with, uh, with Frank, he's gonna get swallowed up. Yeah, and maybe that's what I mean. That's what they they probably shot it like that. I mean, the the camera angles, like everything. So even if you put another actor in that, this is gonna still be the same result. Right, uh, Al Pacino is the center of gravity for this movie, and so you know I. It seems like a whole lot of the school ties cast had auditioned for that role. Yeah, uh, of Brendan Fraser and Matt Damon and Ben Affleck and that whole generation of people. And you know, I'm thinking before rewatching the movie when I knew we were going to do this, I was thinking, well, gosh, you know, like Matt Damon would have been great, or Brendan Fraser would have been great. I mean, these guys could have done this role. And then I bet Matt Damon's pretty glad he didn't do the role. Because it would have been, oh, you know, I was kind of a, a very a, a very distant second place to Al Pacino in this Al Pacino movie. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I mean, Chris O'Donnell got good work after this, I guess. You know, he was Robin. That's something. Oh, Chris O'Donnell. He's got this. Is what his nineties is like. He's in he's in School Ties. So he beat out all those School Ties kids for this role. He's in a wild Drew Barrymore movie. Yeah. He's in a John Grisham adaptation. He's in two Batman movies. So that's like that's a hell of a nineties run. And now he's probably a billionaire with like NC, NCIS. Is he on NCIS? He's now? in a, he's on an NCIS show. Yeah. And he's been on that since like oh seven or something, I think. Okay. So he had he spent his nineties well and he's planned I feel like if you're on an NCIS or Law and Order or something, that's kind of like financial planning or something for an actor <laughs> like uh oh this is this will set me and my kids up nicely i'll be on this show and people will watch it and i'll be secure and safe yeah yeah um i was thinking about because a lot of times we talk about who like if they did this movie now who could do it and the guy i kept thinking of for the charlie role i'm having to look at he was in um Manchester by the Sea. Oh, the, the kid. Is it? Uh, what's his name? Lucas Hedges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a, that's an incredible I choice. Thought, I thought, man, he could have. If, if they redid Sin of Woman, or if they waited until now to do it, uh, he would be good with Charlie. He he'd probably be a stronger push 
against the Al Pacino character than Charlie ended up being mm-hmm. with Chris O'Donnell. Uh, but yeah, that's, I like him for a current iteration. Oh yeah. Movie. But then I also start thinking like if they did the movie now, maybe it would have more of a diverse cast. Would they do that? Or I mean, it's still kind of this white elite prep school vibe. Yeah. Why are we getting all these prep school movies? Why do we get school ties and sin of a woman? Uh, did you ever think, man, it must be fun to go to a prep school? No, never. Me either. I like to be at home. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that doesn't seem like something I would ever want to do. Go to some prep school like Baird. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. Go ahead. Can I ask you this? Yeah. Who are the villain? Who's who are the villains in this movie? It's like it's Trask and it's those asshole kids. Those asshole kids. And cuz so George I, included. George is included and I when I was watching it recently for this, I was looking at they don't they don't like they're they're really the kids are really pissed off that Trask got, got that Jaguar. He's not old money. He's not one of them. Um and that's why that that's what starts this whole deal. And then they're saying stuff to Charlie, like, "Hey, yeah, you should come with us." And he's like, "Oh, it's it's customary to offer drippings to the poor on a holiday, and just kind of all that all that stuff." But then I was thinking, would they find some way to get out of giving him the deal to Harvard if he snitched them out? You know, was that real? I mean, that, I mean, that's only just a conversation between Trask and Charlie. Um, so I feel like. Hey, you can snitch these guys out, and w- this will destroy you. This will destroy everything. And then, even if he did get to Harvard, like even if he got to go, he would have been ostracized at Baird. He would have been ostracized and radioactive at Harvard because of what he did here. And but George, George will be okay. George is probably going to still be friends with those guys. George is not going to be having, even though he ratted them out. Right. Right. And so I kind of felt like I, I agree with that 100%. George's father probably represents this kind of villain in waiting because if, if Charlie had ratted him out, uh, the George seniors of the world would have probably come after him. You know, they were very influential. I noticed this is something I noticed the, the watching this time. George senior is also wearing his bared tie. He's wearing the same tie that all the boys are wearing. And uh, he's very influential. He gives money, raises money for them. Uh, it's kind of like you don't think that he could put pressure on Trask to get rid of Charlie or at least ditch the Harvard recommendation or something. So, yeah, none of these people is trustworthy. Uh, I think I think they are the ultimate villains. Um, so... Plot-wise, if we were to map this out, does the plot uh, – and I'm not suggesting that it does or doesn't, but does it work? Does it really – if you see like, – like, well, I guess we start this way. What's the major conflict of the movie? I think, I think that's like the major conflict. It's the school stuff, right? Yeah, to tell or not to tell, that whole dilemma. So 
So how is the conflict resolved with Frank and Charlie's relationship? Because that, that, I mean, that becomes the, the meat of the movie is their relationship. It's, you know, ask this. If, if Frank didn't show up, is Charlie still off the hook or is Charlie expelled? Charlie's expelled. It's over for him. And I think that's kind of the point because Charlie's an, the outsider from Oregon. He doesn't have any connections. He doesn't have any family coming to save him. Um, and it takes Colonel, the Colonel Frank to, to do that. And he's not old money or anything. He's just kind of this like strong guy, this, you know, kind of old badass that really hasn't done what he could have done with his life. Um, and he, it's kind of redemption for him. Right. Right. I love that. And what was just now occurring to me. So he says to Charlie, I always stood up to authority because it made me feel good. You stand up to authority because it's the right thing to do. And in the end, that's Frank's redemption. He stands up to the authority because it's the right thing to do, not because it makes him feel good. I think it ends up making him feel good just knowing that he helped Charlie. But yeah, for some reason that never really came into focus until right now for me. That that's yeah, that's it. That's the that's Frank's redemption. That he did what was right for the right reasons. And it, it t- took, you know, he has this hard exterior. He's pissing in everyone's eyes all the time. And with Charlie, like, he kind of gets a little bit softer, like, throughout the movie. And a little bit more vulnerable. And it it kind of takes this kind of almost, like, pure person and being around this guy who's kind of going through this to for this to come out of Frank. Right. Right. So maybe Frank's been around, you know, he's been, he's a high ranking, he's been a high ranking army official. So he's been around people like that. And there is an element of politicking to that. And, you know, they say that Frank had been passed over, uh, probably because he wasn't so good at the politicking part or because he was pissing everybody off. Um, that was the thing that I was really impressed this time watching Chris O'Donnell is that he, in many ways, he really is – I mean it's like, yeah, that's I think what this kid would be like. Uh, he feels maybe a little insecure about his position there. He, um, he's meek uh, and, and innocent, you know, kind of wide-eyed. And that's something – even that guy, Lucas Hedges, I don't know that he would necessarily bring that if they remade this movie because I think he has a little bit of an edge to him. And Chris O'Donnell had no edge in this movie. Um, when he's confronting Frank about the gun, it's, it's clear that he's overwhelmed by this. You know, he gets very tearful, like an overwhelmed kid would get. Um, yeah, I don't. Chris Chris O'Donnell was probably the right choice. He did a great job. Yeah, the, and it does it doesn't make sense for that character to all of a sudden be able to like kind of hold the floor with Al Pacino, maybe in that suicide scene or whatever. It has to be kind of clumsy. It has to be, like you said, meek, um, all, like all those things. And he's just kind of like, he's almost like shocked by everything that Frank is saying, like throughout the movie, you know, on the flight and like um, right. about women and just like, and then, and then you also see like how he asked for the beer. And he's like, oh. Uh. <laughs> yeah, that was, and, and it also... I think it kind of that that scene in particular reveals how unworldly he is. You know, Frank. Frank knows, even though Frank, you know, is living on disability, 
he knows about all this stuff. You know, he knows which restaurants to go to, which hotels stay in, where to get Cuban cigars. And Charlie doesn't know anything. Charlie thinks, oh, I'm, I can act a little, I can spread my wings and act a little bit like a grown up beer. You know, you kind of wonder, like, if, if he were allowed to answer the question, what kind of beer, what do you think Charlie would have said? Whatever he saw on commercial? <laughs> yeah. He'd probably ask for no duels. <laughs> Not Schlitz. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's, I, I, I think, yeah, we're circling back to that idea. I think they did a good job by bringing Chris O'Donnell in on it. Do you want to talk about Philip Seymour Hoffman now? Yeah, because I love Philip Seymour Hoffman. I think he's got the harder part um, because he has to thread this needle. um, Because Trent is harder harder part than Chris O'Donnell. I think so, because you're you're going to be in um, Charlie's camp no matter what, and George. Like who's is it? Is it Harry or is it Trent that's like talking to Trask at the first of the movie? And he's like, "Hey, that's a nice piece of that's a nice piece of machinery and everything." And everything is so kiss ass. And then like everything with it's insincere. And then when George is talking to Mrs. Hunsaker, he's like, "Give me one of your famous hugs." And he's also he also gets the library book from Charlie. He's like, "Hey, I need this book or I'm dead." So he's able to kind of bob and weave through all all these kind of channels so you know that he's got that kind of that pedigree that everything that he's going to be fine in the world um and i think like i think that he is incredible in this role he's uh so he's very believable i mean you know i don't watching it i didn't think oh this guy's going to be somebody that we'll want to watch and keep our eyes on but but he but he was that guy you know and uh, and he looks the part. Um, he's yeah. He looks kind of like a, especially in that that disciplinary committee meeting. He he's very kind of petulant. Like he's he's clearly in between a rock and a hard place. But he you know that yeah he's gonna squeal on these guys. And I think really Harry and Trent and what's the other guy's name? What I don't I don't know I don't know. Is? They clearly don't have much regard for George either. Yeah, I mean because they they're fine with him being in that hard position, just the same way they're hard with Charlie being in his. Uh, so it's not like any of these people are like good friends or or even like real friends. They're just rich social creatures. Um, I read that Philip Seymour Hoffman had to audition for the, that role a bunch. Oh, really? Like a, a whole lot of times he was. He was waiting tables and doing, you know, other odd job type stuff that a lot of struggling actors are doing. And it took a while to con- to convince them that he was good for the part. But I think he was because you, as you pointed out, you're kind of in his corner. Like, man, he's you. You empathize with him. You know that he's ultimately going to squeal because that's what his dad wants him to do. Uh, but I certainly like him more than I like Harry and Trent. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In fact, watching it this time, you kind of wish that somebody would like do an act of violence against Harry or Trent. Like they need somebody needs to punch them in the face. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then at the end, at the end, I'm I'm pissed off. Th- those guys just got probation for 
a suspicion of ungentlemanly conduct. They're not getting expelled. There's not going to be a disciplinary hearing for them. And it's just like real life where like these rich white people, nothing happens to them. And if it does, it's a slap on the wrist. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's an appropriate perspective there. Um, Trask is an interesting guy because, so he's not old money. I mean, we're, we're told that from the beginning, though, that he, he, he didn't purchase this Jaguar. The Board of Trustees gave it to him. I presume the Board of Trustees is made up of a bunch of other rich alumni or rich parents or something. So in some respect, he, he's kind of what Charlie could become if Charlie played their game. He would never be a George Sr. He could only be a Trask. He could be someone that I can drive a really nice fancy car if someone gives it to me. And they'll give it to me if I play their game and kiss up to them and reward their elitism. Uh, And the only real authority that he has is over these kids. You know, I I don't know. Part of me thinks like, yeah, it's, it's easy to be a tough guy when you're dealing with children. You know, uh, and maybe that's the difference between Frank and Trask. Uh, Frank led men, albeit young men, middle-aged men, you know, whatever, as a lieutenant colonel. But he he led men. Trask can bully kids, and there's a difference. At, at, a, at a prep school as opposed to in the trenches. Right. This isn't lean on me. He's not, you know, he's not Crazy Joe or Batman or <laughs> uh, Whatever Morgan Freeman went by, um, it's a prep school. I mean, so you know, if the kids get out of line, there's it's much more structured, and his job is mostly kissing up to rich parents, I think, mm-hmm. and then slapping, manipulating, and putting pressure on the what he perceives as the weak links in the chain. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. Trask is. I guess this whole elitism is the real villain of this movie, but Trask is a part of it. Oh yeah, he thinks he's better. He thinks he's better because he plays their game. And thank goodness for uh, June Squibb. Is that her name? <clears throat> the woman who's Mrs. Hunsinger. Oh. And uh, Francis Conroy. Yeah, good for them. These other kids that don't need any time to deliberate. They just come to the decision that yeah, this is we can do what's right here. And then Trask is like, are you sure? And he's like, yeah. he's like, very well, very well. <laughs> Listening to it, I caught like, you know, this little like quiet line of dialogue where he's like, you don't want to discuss it. Uh, no, no, we, you know, we got it. Now, so one thing, I don't think it guarantees that Charlie gets a free ride to Harvard. I think that's, I think that's probably gone. That That's gone, but he's, not going to be blackballed by this incident. And maybe some of the other people will step up for him. You know, like some of these other, like the other teachers, it's Francis Conroy's teacher. Anybody who witnessed this display. And we know that Frank would write him a letter of recommendation. I don't know how much weight that carries, but, (laughs) uh, but it's, it's something. I'll tell you, I wasn't crazy about the music. I thought the music didn't, uh, well, I guess this, the music, I kept thinking of like these old Jimmy Stewart movies, like Frank Capra movies, because in a way, this movie is kind of presented like that. Everything is beautiful. 
Uh, and I think that's something Martin Brest, that was kind of a trademark of his movies. Meet Joe Black, Everything is Beautiful, um, Midnight Run, not so much, Beverly Hills Cop, not so much. So maybe it's just this two-movie run. Um, honestly, I never saw G. Lee. Did you see that? I didn't see G. Lee. So the, the consensus, apparently he wrote, directed, and produced G. Lee. And I was looking at some subreddits because you asked the question, you know, what's what's up with Martin Brest? Um, the consensus is that Geely was such a terrible flop that it effectively just killed his court career. Yeah, and and there's nothing after that. There's not any writing credits. It's not like he's doing TV episodes or anything. And, and like I even read something that said that like no one really knows where he is. They like assume he's in New York somewhere because he lives that he's from there. He's not even yeah, he's not even doing anything with NCIS. No. <laughs> I think I think so, I I did hear one time that he he kind of was the kind of director who with the studio would you thought you were getting one movie and he would take oh. 8 months longer on it, change up the script, change up a bunch of stuff and you've got like a completely different movie. Um okay. so I think that I think that was happening with some stuff and i think he didn't play ball on a lot of things studio wise so i mean because i don't i can't I mean, like so, let, like let's say like you and me hit hit the lottery and we open up some studio i mean there's a ton of great directors that are not working at all right now for whatever reason and this is one of them um i mean if we had like netflix money we'd be like hey do you want to come back do you want to do something um and John McTiernan, who directed Die Hard, is like that. Like, there's a handful of directors that are still pretty young, director-wise, that could do that. Yeah. So it's kind of crazy so, to me that, like, with all the streaming and all the content out now, that, like, no one's picking him up. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, if you So if you were a Netflix guy or you had your own streaming platform and were looking for content... And you thought, I want Martin Brest to do something. What would you want him to do? Would you want him to do something like this? Or would you want him to do um, like Beverly Hills Cop? What What would you hire Martin Brest to do? I'll take anything from Beverly Hills Cop to Midnight Run to Sin of a Woman, Meet Joe Black. I like all those movies. You want him to do a series or do you want him to do a movie? Whatever Feature. we can do, whatever he wants to do, and we can. So he would, yeah, you would hire him. Yeah, it might be a pain in the ass, but I mean, if we've got all this money to, and we got to make a bunch of content, why not? And maybe we got somebody. It's like, hey, we got this executive producer to help you out. It's gonna make sure you transition everything okay, and yeah, stay within budget and stay on schedule. Yeah. Because I feel like he would probably yeah, be humbled now at this point after not working for like 20 years. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's another thing. So Geely was like 20 years ago. He, I, I looked it up because I was thinking, well, maybe he's not working because he's really old now. He's 70, mm -hmm. which is, you know, not young, but there are directors. Clint Eastwood, we talked about him. He's 90-something years old. He's in a movie coming out that he's written and directed. So it's not unheard of. Martin Scorsese says he's over 70. Martin Brest could still be making movies. Can you imagine losing your dream career when you're only 50? I mean, that that's rough. Yeah. That's rough. Uh, and he obviously can he can work with, like, high-level talent. I mean, Beverly Hills yeah, Cop. Nero, 
puts puts Eddie Murphy on the map, one of the biggest stars in the eighties. Worked with De- Robert De Niro. I've read. Yeah. it's not terribly easy to work with. Mm-hmm. Al Pacino, also you know of that caliber. I don't know how easy he is to work with or not. Um, Anthony Hopkins and Brad Pitt. There's probably some challenges with working with those guys. I don't. I haven't seen it a million times or anything, but I do like love Meet Joe Black. And the first time I saw it, I really loved it. See that together? No, I saw it with my sister. We may have seen it on VHS or something. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I remember we went to the... Well, of course we went to the movie theater to see it because the big thing about Meet Joe Black was the Phantom Menace trailer that screened before it. Mm-hmm. So I remember going to see... It didn't matter what Meet Joe Black ended up being. and The Star Wars trailer was going to be on it, so we were there. Um, so there we go. If Martin Brest is listening... Martin Brest, we think you should still get some work. Uh, somebody invest in Chad and Scotty's streaming platform so we can get some content going. We'll get Martin Brest working. But we're going to keep you, we're going to rein you in, Martin Brest. We're not going to let you go crazy with us. He's probably not. I, maybe he is. Maybe he would be worse now. But maybe he'd be like, not really have the energy to like, hey, let's do a million takes of this. And hey, let's do this. Like, maybe he's like, we got it. Next, next scene. So I read that the tango scene in A Sense of a Woman took three days to shoot. I think we'd be like, you can't be taking three days to shoot a tango scene, man. This isn't a tango movie. You know, half, shoot it in the morning. We need to have it. We need to have it in the can. I'm fine. I'm fine with the three-day scene for shooting that. Cause I think stuff does like, you know, music videos. Remember they would like, like Aerosmith to talk about, yeah, we're like performing stuff for like four days when we're shooting music videos for this, like kind of one minute clip. So I guess it kind of, I guess it kind of goes with like what you'd have to do, I guess with the territory, I guess with the coverage of like everything you have to have for that. And especially all the cameras and maybe it'd be different now to where you wouldn't need to have all that time. You could just kind of get it. Yeah, maybe. I did notice he asked for coordinates to the dance floor, but he doesn't ask for any coordinates when he's in that car. Yeah, so he's just like, I was thinking, man, Charlie's got to be pretty precise on these turns. Like, would I be saying, when do you say turn? Is it like when you're right there on the street or before? I mean, he's in a Ferrari for crying out loud. Uh, it's, It's a harrowing scene. And in the cop, the cop, and that that like that like how he like kind of puts one over on the cop um, to get out of the ticket and be able to like drive back to the dealership. That's an incredible scene. That is incredible. I was thinking like, if the cop knew he was blind, would he? He might arrest them both. That's like <laughs> go to jail. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was so. Frank always. I guess this comes back to the the political part of being an, a high-ranking officer in the military, clearly Frank is good with people. I mean, he's charming. So he, you know, he charms a cop and pulls him over. He, I think that even in the, the Thanksgiving scene, I think Gail even kind of likes Frank. She, when she's like, Frank, she kind of <laughs> giggles a little bit. Um, I think she kind of likes Frank. I think Randy and maybe... His brother Willie are the maybe the ones who don't like him the most. The youngest son, he seems to be okay with Frank. 
the women seem to be kind of taken in by his charm a little bit. I mean, it's definitely a tense Thanksgiving scene. Have you ever been to a family gathering that was that tense? No, not not especially not someone like telling stories like that and stuff. Like telling your your worst day, like oh, well, let me tell you about Scotty's worst day. Or oh, there's that, but then also like as far as so I got this Asian flower on one side of me, and like like I've never <laughs> been like where that kind of thing was happening. Um, You've never told these tawdry stories <laughs> at a family gathering. Let East meet West. Yes. So I'm pretty sure in the 90s, after I watched this movie, I was like, I got to find out what the Corps of Engineers is. Because <laughs> <laughs> apparently Frank uh, felt like he was part of it then. So do you think that Frank and Charlie saved each other on this venture? So I think... So I think we like, I mean, I want to say yes. I think definitely Frank saved Charlie in the short term. Because, because but for this problem, I mean, Charlie was probably going to be okay, right? I mean, this, I guess ask this, does Charlie, how is he different at the end of the movie than he is at the beginning? Um, is he more confident? I think he's a little bit more confident. I think he's a little bit more worldly or... He's got a little bit more toughness to him, I think, being in this situation. Okay. So he has – so Frank becomes something of a, a surrogate father for him, right? Yeah. Uh, his father left. He's got no one to – we didn't even see that Charlie tells his parents, his dad, his stepmother or his stepfather and his mom at all about what's going on. Yeah, and also, and also like you know, said, hey, we're not going to tell our parents because George told him that's what we're going to do. So he's kind of like – being kind of obedient to the yeah. system there. So maybe maybe Charlie will push back a little bit now when something's not right. Rather than just going with the flow of whoever's making the rules, maybe he will step up and be like, wait a minute, that's not right. Um, Frank, I think, well, I mean, Frank doesn't kill himself. He, he lives because Charlie is willing to say, you've got something to live for. And uh, I like to think that Frank ends up with the political science teacher, or at least they end up having you know some time together. Uh, yeah, I think I, I guess they do end up saving each other. Frank for sure. Charlie, in the short term, he's definitely saved. He gets to stay at Baird. He's probably something of a hero now. You kind of hope that a tradition will be oh, you know, for incoming students. You weren't here when Charlie Sims gave the middle finger to Trask and this old military colonel showed up and threatened to burn the place down with a flamethrower. So maybe maybe Charlie gets elevated even in the Baird tradition. He becomes something of a legend. Uh, Yeah, yeah. I think that it's it's a mutually edifying and saving relationship, I think. And that that scene... You know, the disciplinary hearing, I can't think of another movie that kind of has something equivalent to that. Well, so, you know, it's interesting that uh, Frank says, is this a courtroom? Are we swearing? You know, I'd like to swear some people in. 
and trash is what's the closest thing we have to it. So the most maybe parallel would be like a a big courtroom scene at the end of a legal drama Mm -hmm. where you get to have this great closing argument and the jury decides, yes, it's, you know, in in favor of the protagonist. So I guess in that way, it really plays out the beats like that, like like a legal drama towards the end. But yeah, other than that, I mean... Rudy, Rudy's pretty exciting at the end. <laughs> you know when he's heralded. Uh, you like? I think I think we're happy to see Charlie applauded and cheered on by the majority of his classmates, um, and everybody kind of gets their due. And I think yeah, I think you know it's it's a feel good movie in the end for that. Mm-hmm. The doggy bag. What are you taking home from this movie? What's its legacy? Well, so Al Pacino kind of became a cartoon after this. So uh, we probably had to listen to a lot of people say hoo a whole lot um, after this. So, you know, it had a cultural, it has a cultural longevity to it. I bet if we polled just random people, have you seen A Sin of a Woman? What do you know about it? Isn't it the one where Al Pacino says hoo a whole lot, something like that? Um, I think it's important. So, so I guess I'll just say something that resonates with me: the idea of having uh, a mentor. And I think Frank, better than a father figure, becomes a mentor for Charlie. Somebody that he's interested in what's going on with Charlie. That's how important is that for a young person, for any person, to have somebody interested in what's going on with you, and and who sees that who sees you and acknowledges that what you're going through is a difficult thing and is willing to come stand with you. I think that's a, I think that's a, a resonating theme to be willing to stand beside somebody who's in a tough spot and say, uh, I'll, I'll be your advocate. I'll, I'll stand up for you even when nobody else does or when it would be easier not to. And so I think that's something that really resonates with me. Um, I, I, after watching the movie, I always wanted to go to New York City and stay in the Waldorf Astoria and have a really nice suit and, you know, go to these fancy places like Frank knows about. That seems like, yeah, if you're going to go to New York, if you can, you need to have an experience like that. The Tour of Pleasures. The Tour of Pleasures. Um, what do you think? What, what is your dog I think it's it's really lightning in the bottle, you know. This great Al Pacino performance. We've got some great performances from like some actors like Philip Seymour Hoffman. As I was younger, I mean, the Al Pacino part was like the most captivating. And then like watching it, like as I, as I'm older now, seeing kind of all of these tropes of like the rich and the elite, and kind of like kind of how real life kind of does keep people like Charlie down, and they kind of like find an excuse to kind of dismiss them or disregard them. Like that's interesting. Um, It's just, yeah, I want to go to New York and do that too. Did you read that Donald Trump had a scene in this movie that they cut? I did. I did. Um, When they're, is it when they're coming into the Waldorf? Yeah. Into the hotel? Yeah. 
Uh, I'm glad they did that. I'm so glad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even if it it wouldn't have aged well 10 years ago. I mean, it just, it would not have aged well to have this um, person like a, a, one thing this movie does not have is references to its time. Yeah. No references to like uh, MC Hammer or or even like grunge music or anything. It, it, I think maybe that's why I was thinking like Frank Capra. The mm-hmm. soundtrack or the score is all strings and kind of orchestrations, and it seems more like one of those timeless Frank Capra movies. It's kind of like an R-rated Frank Capra movie. Uh, you know, even in It's a Wonderful Life, Jimmy Stewart was going to kill himself. So it's not like dark themes weren't explored in those older classic movies. This one just has the language to back it up, I guess. Um, See, I I like that it it does not date itself by including a lot of dialogue about what was going on in the culture at the time. And I really don't think Martin Bress did that. I mean, I don't think he does that really in Meet Joe Black. I don't really think he does that in Midnight Run. Beverly Hills Cop, I mean, there's the music, but I mean, for the most part, the, all that stuff is pretty timeless. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. We'll have to watch Chile sometime and see if it's really as big a disaster as everyone says it was. I always confused Geely with Jersey Girl. I did, too. I was like, he did Geely? I thought Kevin Smith did that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, if thank you, if you. Yeah. If you were to want, if you were to redo this movie today, first off, could this movie be made today? Would it be a feature? Would it be a series? It probably has to be a series. That's like where all the kind of roles like this are now, and it'd probably be a limited series. And yeah, like six episodes. Yeah, and that would be it. If it was a feature, I feel like it would be like an independent movie, mm-hmm. uh, not a big budget thing. Who would you? Who do you cast as Charlie today? Timothy Chalamet. So he he's kind of the age. I I can't I can't think of many actors who are like around this age right now that are really good. Um, and we probably don't watch a lot of those YA shows. Yeah. Um, At least I don't. I don't. I'm unaware of most of them. Because I don't want to be like. Tom Holland? Tom Holland? Yeah. It'd be hard because, I mean, you're, you're, Tom Holland, no matter what Tom Holland does, he's going to be Spider-Man. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's, that's part of just mm-hmm. that now. Robert Downey Jr. is going to forever be Iron Man because of those movies, uh, the ubiquitousness of it, the ubiquity of it. Um... So who who do you cast as Frank? Pacino is too old now, right? I mean, well, yeah, Pacino's he's be 70s, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, this is this movie was thirty years ago. You know, this this guy was like someone who would still be in the military. You know, if he hadn't had the accident. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. So he's probably like fifty. Yeah, the character's maybe fifty or so. Mm-hmm. So. Somebody around that age, who do you cast today? Who's 50? Who's around the, in their 50s? I, I mean, Robert Downey Jr. would be fun. That's true, and he'd probably do a good job. Yeah, he, that's a good point. He's, he's got a lot of the moves for that. 
for some reason, Jamie Foxx came to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, because he's that blind guy in Horrible Bosses? <laughs> yeah, because yeah, of who he is in Horrible Bosses. <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, I don't know that you want Jamie Foxx playing another blind guy. Mm-hmm. You know, after Ray Charles, it might just be like, why is Ray Charles in this movie? It's in that way. So as I was thinking about this question and kind of coming up with the same difficulties that we're describing, it made me think, yeah, this is probably not a movie that you remake. Mm-hmm. That's, and that's probably, that's a good thing. Yeah. It speaks to the, to the quality of the original. I mean, you have to have a high caliber performer for Frank. You can't have just right. just any any movie star. I think. I think you have to have somebody who's top top of the line. So, if Leonardo DiCaprio was a little older, could he do it? Yeah, it's like Leo. It's may, maybe Brad, I'm sure Brad Pitt can do this. Um, Denzel Denzel could do this. I mean, it's that upper it's echelon. Has done something like I mean maybe not blind but Frank has an element of danger to him. You know you you have to really believe that he's going to kill himself and he might kill Charlie. Yeah. So it can't be somebody soft like um, I don't know. You probably don't even want somebody like Matt Damon to do this. Oh, like, that mm-hmm. school ties generation. I don't know that any of them works in the role of Frank. They don't. None of them looks like they've. Seen arms ripped off and legs torn off of people. And that's one thing that Frank, you do believe that. You believe that he's, in Pacino's portrayal, you, you believe that he's seen that stuff. Mm-hmm. Sean Penn, maybe he's too old, I don't know. But it's somebody who can get intense, but be charming. Maybe Robert Downey Jr. is the best. Maybe, can Christian Bale do it? Sure he does, does he have the does he have like the the charm and the charisma for a lot of this stuff? So if if Philip Seymour Hoffman was alive, could he have done it? Oh yeah, oh yeah. That would have been an interesting evolution to have the guy who played George become the Frank character. You know. So one final question: What happens to George after this movie? George Junior. Like where, that, where, where does that character's story go? He's just okay? Yeah, nothing happens to him. He's fine. He's fine. The same trajectory he was on, he just continues on. Yeah, because people like that, when they j- jack up, like, it's fine. It's it's kind of forgiven. I mean, I feel like he's probably hanging out with those guys later that day. Yeah. And it's kind of like... forgiven him, too? Yeah, and th- yeah they're... They're like, yeah, um, yeah. So, so, oh, yeah. I understand your dad's such a dick. You know, it becomes it, the parents stay the bad guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For for people like that, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. It's a good movie. Yeah. Thanks, Chad, for being on the episode. Um, guaranteed great episode when you get on the mic. If you want to hear more, you can subscribe, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a, I'm a great ghost too, Chad. Mac and cheese out. Thanks, Scotty. So, Chad, this is a, an addendum to our episode. Um, we recorded this in August, 
it's Thanksgiving week now, and we're just now getting to the food and drink portion of the thrust of what this this podcast is about. Yeah, addendum is a good word. <laughs> what are you, a lawyer? <laughs> I got this role from Mia's. It's supposed to be with the hottest roles in town. What kind of role is it? It's like from an Italian restaurant. It's an Italian restaurant. It's just like a roll, like a dinner roll. There's not like any jelly or frosting or anything on this. Looks pretty good. Is it warm? I warmed it up. Is it tough? It looked kind of like you had to like make some effort to get the bite off. Well, I got this yesterday. <laughs> so it's stale. It's a stale roll. <laughs> I found this roll under my car seat, and uh, I think it's pretty fresh. Um... I mean, it's good. I mean, I, I had one yesterday because I wanted to know what all the fuss was about. It doesn't live up to expectations of everyone saying it's the best roll in town. Um, That's too bad, but is it a good roll? I think it's a good roll, and I think if you're at a restaurant, it's fine. I'm not going to have dreams about this roll. Are there any rolls that you will dream about? I'm going to sound so lame right here, but I like the rolls from Chicken Express. Okay, so I usually go for biscuits at Chicken Express, but those rolls are pretty good. Yeah, I think there's like kind of a sweetness to them. I think I like a sweetness in a roll. What about like a Hawaiian roll? I love a Hawaiian roll. Yeah, Lacey makes Hawaiian sliders. Oh, that's what we did for the Pulp Fiction podcast. Yeah, they're terrific. Um, So I was thinking about rolls that I like, and I was really, honestly, I thought you might say this was the roll you liked. I really like the warm rolls at Texas Roadhouse. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're we're being fake if we're glossing over that. Um, those are pretty good. Yeah, they're delicious. I'm, I'm not dreaming about them, but, but they are delicious. How much stuff are you really dreaming about? I dream about stressful stuff. All anxiety. Yeah. That's all I have. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm like back in my childhood home and I realize I owe someone money. That's the things I have. <laughs> or it's my senior year of high school and I finally need to go to my locker and I can't remember the combination to save my life. That's, that's, the, that's what's really come up in my dreams. Yes. I wish a sweet roll. I would, I would love some bread and pastry dreams. Oh my God. That'd be pretty terrific. Yeah. Um, now I am... Since I mentioned biscuits earlier from Chicken Express, I think I tend to be a biscuit guy. A good biscuit trumps a really good roll to me. Yeah, I like a Hardee's biscuit. Hardee's biscuits are good. Yeah. It's a Hardee's in some parts of the country, Carl's Jr. in some parts of the country. Yeah, I mean, if I'm around where there's a Carl's Jr. and I'm going to a training or something, yeah, you got to get a little jelly biscuit. What about biscuits and gravy? You like that? Yeah, I like that. I don't get that at, at Hardee's, but... um. Yeah, I like, like if someone makes that homemade or something. Yeah, like a um, there's a place in Seattle called Biscuit Bitch, and it has like all these like kind of crazy biscuits and stuff. And that's like somewhere it'd be really good to get one. Is that someone's title or is it like a like a command? It's like a franchise. But I mean, like the name is it like what do you want to eat? Biscuit. <laughs> no, no, no. It's like no, it's like. Hey, do, where do you want to get breakfast? Biscuit bitch. Let's try to get in biscuit bitch before it gets too busy. So like the person who makes it is the biscuit. That's her title. Or his, I guess. Equal opportunities. 
I think it's maybe the LLC's name. I think I'm trying to get at what the meaning of the title is. It's not a demand, like. Oh, it's like biscuit, bitch. Um, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's it's probably irrelevant. We may need to edit all of this out. <laughs> this portion. Of- we're we're keeping all of the extra scenes. <laughs> the bonus features. Yes. They'd be like, oh, I can see why they didn't put this in the original thing. This is only for the fans who subscribe <laughs> continually. Yeah, I mean, you got to listen to the entire episode before you're going to get to this. I'm not going to throw this in and dice it in the middle now. This is going to be at the end. Gotcha. I also have some Jack Daniels that John. I... The John Daniels. And I got this, like, when we recorded, and I was going to do this, but then we had it, like, the podcast at, like, like 9 in the morning... It's only like 11.30 right now, but we're going to see how this goes because we need to talk about this drink. Are you going to drink all of it? I'm going to... No. I have like... I did like one glass with no ice in it. What does it say on my glass? It says you're not drinking alone if your dog is home. Aww. (laughs) It's kind of a bad reassurance. And this has some ice in it, so we're going to see how this goes. I'll tell you what. I'm telling you what. I'm probably not a big fan of this because... Some of it got on my finger when I was pouring it, and it smells a whole lot like when I was a kid sometimes, if you had a cough, your parents would give you like, they'd mix up in a bowl like whiskey and honey to help the cough, and it smells like that. Your parents were giving you hot toddies for coughs? Sometimes, not like usually, but that that definitely did happen. My mom was trying to hide like Tylenol, cherry Tylenol in... Like Shasta sodas. I, I wasn't getting any kind of liquor. <laughs> oh, oh, that's how she handled your cough. Yeah, she's trying to hide the medicine because I, <laughs> I had a real sensitive gag reflex, so I was prone to vomit up cherry and grape flavored things for coughs. So she poured them in sodas, like oh yeah, like this grape soda that has a healthy dose of. Nyquil. I'm not gonna notice that as a seven-year-old kid. <laughs> How old are you when your parents are getting you boozed up? It was like I was. I mean, I was little. I mean, I was like. I think they're not trying to help the cough. I think they're trying to put you to sleep. They. I mean, that's possible. I don't think. I think this was more normal before we had like so many helicopter parents and helicopter like rules and the and social media and everything. I think this I, was a little bit more. No, no. I think it's every Christmas Eve, your parents are having to get you liquored up to go to sleep so they can put Christmas out. I think that's what's happening. Because I'm staking out for Santa? Exactly. They're like, you know what, he's not going to go to sleep. Let's just booze him up. Let's just booze him up. Richard Drivers will never go home. <laughs> that's exactly it. That's exactly it. We'll have to get Walter in for like a commemorative 10-year anniversary bonus edition. Get him to comment on this. I looked up Jack Daniels. This is what it says. It's a superb value for the whiskey in its bottle. While I didn't find that to be true with Jim Beam, White Label, Jack Daniels can be a decent sipping whiskey despite its low proof and downer finish. Downer finish makes it sound like it's Eeyore or something. Um, Or it's like the total buzzkill at the party. Now you're drunk. Okay, let's see here. I don't... um, it's not. Did not make that face in the movie. 
<laughs> no, he did not make this face in the movie. If he's really just lying about loving Jack Daniels, he, he finally tastes it. Just, he's like, oh, you want to see me drink it? Chris O'Donnell? Uh, uh, I mean, I'll drink it. I drink it all the time. And then he makes that face. <laughs> Let's see if it's better with the ice. Let's see here. This has been, I mean, I put this ice in here, and then we had like a lot of technical difficulty getting this even started. So it's kind of watered down, which is probably going to be a lot better for it. Let's see here. It's not wonderful. I mean, I'm, I'm glad I didn't buy like a whole huge bottle of this. I just got the little airline bottle or something of this. So you're not usually a Jack Daniels guy. No, I don't think I know. I don't I mean maybe I got some drink or something one time at some place, but I mean um I don't it's never been a staple at all. The, I'm gonna, I'm going to do I'm going to talk about the nose. This is like the smell. It says that there's general aromas of caramel, vanilla and butterscotch. And a hint of wood is apparent and toffee notes begin to appear. Smell any of that? Maybe the wood. I smell old lumber. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's no caramel or vanilla or butterscotch. Nope, nope. The body and palate. On the palate, Jack Daniels has a smooth, smoky sweetness. One reviewer has described it as having a corn syrup note to it, and we agree. I don't really know what corn syrup straight up tastes like, so... I guess it's bad. I guess, I guess corn syrup sucks, even though that's like what we make Cokes out of. Corn syrup, straight up. That's a drink. <laughs> finish. Jack Daniels offers a quick, sweet finish. Nice oak notes, a hint of spices, and perhaps a touch of cedar mingle with a warm caramel finish that gives way to white pepper and walnuts. I don't know how any of this gets written about these drinks. How do I not have the taste or nose for any of this? Ah, it's not ah. God, my my mouth is on fire. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Did Shannon write these reviews? <laughs> Did she? No. <laughs> Mess with you. She's like, oh, it tastes like prime rib. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah, it's, it's closer to prime rib than this caramel nonsense that they're talking about. That kind of makes you want to eat like. A, Thanksgiving pie or something. Those were news. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Not after drinking this. I don't after drinking this. I don't. I don't know what I'm gonna have to do with this bottle now. Um, Is Jack Daniels more of an acquired taste, maybe? Um. Guys in Guns N' Roses seem to love it so much. Yeah, I mean they are like a lot more hardcore than me. I guess when you're doing heroin like for breakfast, a little John Daniels throughout the day is no big deal. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, you know, I just, I've never lived anywhere as crappy as they were living when they were a band before they made it. Like, just kind of, I think everything about that life is probably like, yeah, it, it lends itself to Jack Daniels, I think. What kind of music do you think Frank Slade likes? Maybe only classical music like, or something? Like the Rat Pack? Yeah, maybe he likes some Frank Sinatra. Yeah. Not- I don't think he's into, like... The Beatles. Of course, wouldn't it have been funny? You remember that movie, that Jeff Bridges movie, The Door to the Floor? Oh, yeah. Really filthy rap songs on in the car. 
and the kid goes to turn it down and he's like, no, I love this song. <laughs> Turns it up. A scene like that in A Sin of a Woman where Chris O'Donnell, I don't know, plays, I don't know what music, NWA, was that peak NWA? I get, I get. 1992, Frank Slade's like, no, I love this song. <laughs> this role is nothing to write home about at all, especially a day later. <laughs> There's a fly on it right now. And this uh, drink, uh, you know, you can get better drinks than this. I think, like, I think maybe this is the worst drink we've ever had on this show. Oh, 